The landscape of North America's networks is rapidly evolving. New technologies like 5G carry a lot of promise to redefine the way we do business, learn, and connect with one another. But we're not there just yet. From the budget to build, software to secure, and Spectrum to support all use cases regardless of locale, a lot needs to happen before everyone can tap into its fullest potential. Tune in to Nokia today, where we discuss how policymakers, enterprises, and industry leaders are working together to bring today's network capabilities to scale for the future. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Nokia Today podcast. I am your host, Tyler Kern. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode. Today's podcast is going to look at the work that Congress has been doing to close the digital divide and provide connectivity for all Americans. Now, this is an issue that existed previously, but has been brought sharply into focus by the COVID-19 pandemic. Overnight, the country had to adapt to suddenly working, socializing, and learning from home, which has revealed gaps in our telecommunications infrastructure. So joining this episode to provide his insight and expertise is Congressman Bill Johnson from Ohio's 6th Congressional District. Representative Johnson served his country for 26 years in the U.S. Air Force. Now, following his military service, he founded two IT consulting companies and has been representing his constituents in Ohio since 2010. He currently serves on the Committee on Energy and Commerce and the Budget Committee. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me, Tyler. Appreciate it. Absolutely. We are very happy to have you and your expertise and knowledge uh, on this topic joining us here on the podcast today. And moderating this conversation is going to be Lauren McCarty. She's the Director of Government Relations at Nokia. Lauren, thank you for being here today as well. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, Lauren, you are driving this train, so let me turn the reins over to you and uh, let you take it away. Great. Thanks, Tyler. Welcome, Congressman. Thank you again for being here with us. And we'll get into some specifics in just a minute. But I wanted to get started on sort of a more general level. You know, most members of Congress have been working from home in their districts for the last few weeks. And we saw that in Ohio, the governor just lifted the stay at home order last week. So if you could just start us off with a general update from your district, how are your constituents and your businesses doing throughout the pandemic? Well, I appreciate that. Uh, you know, my district is the the longest district east of the Mississippi. It takes about six and a half hours to drive it from one end to the other. Eighteen counties lined up end to end, and and it is. Uh, I'd say, golly, if it's not a hundred percent rural, I don't know what is. But but our governor, uh, I believe, has done an excellent job. Very very early on, he showed uh, real leadership. In, uh, in putting forth measures, preventative measures that were going to flatten the curve, and that worked. And now we're going through the process of opening up the state uh, economically. Uh, you know, we've got some challenges living in remote areas like this, particularly here along the Ohio River. One of the biggest issues we've got is access to broadband. Uh, businesses are being hurt uh, because they can't, uh, they can't remote work, uh, distance learning, kids being, uh, being dis- uh, disadvantaged because they can't get to their schoolwork. And of course, lacking uh, the benefits of, of e-commerce uh, and telehealth uh, when, uh, when you're forced to stay at home. I mean, some people can even order their groceries from home and other essential items but you can only do that if you've got access to the internet. So the governor's done a great job. We've got a lot of challenges, but I know Ohioans are anxious to get back to work. 
Well, let's transition and dive into some of those issues that you mentioned. Uh, as was said at the beginning, a lot of these connectivity policy issues have always been present, but they've really been magnified since the beginning of the pandemic. So you serve on the Communications and Technology Subcommittee in the House, and so you've been working on these connectivity and rural broadband issues for years. So can you dive in a little bit more and talk about in your district how COVID has really changed things and has really highlighted the need for expanded broadband? COVID-19 did not cause the urban-rural divide. Uh, but it certainly exposed it, uh, and it exposed the dire need for broadband services in rural America. I think uh, there's probably not a decision maker anywhere that doesn't understand that here in the 21st century, in a digital economy, that having access to high-speed internet is as important as having uh, electricity and plumbing and, uh, and the other basic amenities of life that people in urban and metropolitan areas have. For example, uh, I mentioned earlier, you know, students uh, were sent home when the schools were closed. Uh, many of those students needed to be able to do uh, distance learning uh, to finish out their school year. And a lot of them didn't have access to the internet. I heard horror stories of people having to go sit in uh, the parking lot of a, of a Tim Hortons or a Panera Bread or a Walmart uh, where they were giving, uh, you know, access, free access to their hotspots. So distance learning has been a problem. Small businesses have suffered because employees cannot work from home in many, many cases. You've got the increased isolation uh, and, and the inability to order uh, basic necessities like groceries, uh, prescription drugs and such uh, from home online. And of course, we had some legislation in the second COVID-19 supplemental that waived some of the restrictions on telehealth for, uh, for Medicare providers. And so we were able to open the door for uh, telehealth to be utilized, but that's only good if you got access to an internet or a wireless connection where you can Skype or FaceTime or some other uh, uh, technology medium that uh, that that you can uh, that you can use telehealth with. So it really highlighted uh, just how serious the problem of uh, of the urban rural divide is. And you know, one other thing that it highlighted was the the importance of our local broadcasters, uh, local radio and local television. When you're shut down at home and you got no access to the outside world via the internet, uh, the only place you get information is either from your local radio station or television station. And so those are, those are some of the things that highlighted this critical need for expanded broadband. Yeah, with so many of these things, it seems like everything else, we've identified the problem, but it becomes then how do we fix the problem? And you, this Congress, had co-sponsored the Serving Rural America Act, which establishes a grant program to expand broadband service. And we know that potentially in a future stimulus bill, there may be more money for broadband expansion. So could you tell us from what you've seen in your opinion, if more grant money does become available through the stimulus or through other legislation, how should we spend that money and how can it be best utilized to close some of these gaps? You know, uh, some funds uh, should be spent for technology and equipment such as 
hot spots. I, I mentioned people that don't have access at their home having to go sit in the parking lot of a of a shopping center or a, or a, an eating establish a restaurant uh, where they can get access to a hot spot. That's a temporary solution for students and businesses that need broadband access, uh, but it is certainly not the long-term solution. I'd be very supportive of providing uh, funds for broadband uh, uh, build-out, uh, particularly programs like the ARDOF, uh, the uh, Rural Digital Opportunity Fund. I believe that that funding, uh, we should expedite that as quickly as we can, because there's like $20.4 billion that has already been appropriated by Congress, uh, and the FCC is uh, getting ready to begin taking applications. But the funding should go to those carriers that are able to provide the highest level of service, ideally uh, gigabit service, uh, and, and, and those service providers that are are in the starting block, they're ready to start building out. Uh, because if we only provide 25-3 uh, minimum capability within another six months or a year, that's going to be outdated too, especially when you consider the rest of the world is moving toward 5G. Uh, we can't even get 1G to rural America. And, uh, and to think that 25-3 is acceptable service, that's not true either. We need to provide uh, the funding that we do provide needs to provide the very best level of service that Internet service providers can provide, not the not the typical minimum uh, uh, lowest cost bidder service that uh, that so often the federal government settles on. And we talk a lot about that at Nokia here, too. And if we're going to the trouble of, of spending this money and taxpayer money on building out infrastructure, we ought to make sure that it's future proof. So that definitely hear you there. Let's move on to uh, the topic of infrastructure, because after all these these issues we're talking about, connectivity depends on the physical wires and pipes and antennas that connect us all. And the Energy and Commerce Committee that you serve on, in addition to the FCC, has done a lot of work on this over the past couple of years and really trying to streamline rules and regulations so that telecommunications infrastructure in particular can be deployed quickly. But during the last couple of months during the pandemic, we've seen industry raise concerns about their ability to continue this work during COVID. Everything from, you know, limited government resources to approve permits to confusion around the treatment of telecom professionals as essential. So are you concerned at all that the pandemic has set us behind at all in infrastructure deployment? Yeah, I, I am very concerned about that. It's, it, it's very likely. Uh, that in many cases, uh, the, the COVID pandemic uh, has slowed the process. Uh, you mentioned it, getting permits um, and also reducing the available workforce uh, even once the permits are, are obtained. I, I heard about uh, an example, uh, the commander for one of the uh, U.S. Army Corps of Engineers districts that serve my region told me early on that some projects will be delayed due to the lack of access to some key sites that they would need to visit. Uh, you, can, uh, you can get waivers uh, in some cases, but not all. Um, in addition to that, you've got state infrastructure funds are also taking a huge hit due to, to, uh, to the stay-at-home order. Uh, you know, you've got 
many, uh, many federal programs, particularly infrastructure programs uh, along the river that the Army Corps of Engineers might be involved in, require local matching funds. Uh, with the hit to local governments, their revenue dwindling to zero, and then uh, the double whammy of the state budgets contracting, uh, you've got a big problem with maybe local communities not being able to come up with the local funding that they thought they were going to have access to. Um, uh, the, the pandemic is also fueling the momentum and exposing the need for that, for that broadband infrastructure. We talked about that. Anytime you talk about infrastructure in rural America, you have to include uh, broadband in that discussion. And, and we've also seen the dangers of relying on other countries such as China. Uh, when, you, when you talk about infrastructure, our supply chain infrastructure is one that we've got to look at. Uh, you know, we need to be uh, resilient in a global economy, but, but we also have to be self-sufficient. And we can't be depending upon a, a country like China that really doesn't like us very well and that we now know basically hid from the world the dangers of this uh, COVID-19 uh, coronavirus uh, and, and delayed getting the word out so the rest of the world could, be, uh, could have been spared. And we've also seen uh, uh, an increase to the urgency to secure our networks and invest in innovation because we can't rely on other countries like, like China. I, I recently introduced some legislation called H.R. 6940, the Advancing Tech Startups Act, which promotes a national strategy for encouraging more tech-focused startups and small businesses in all parts of the United States. You know, typically... Uh, Silicon Valley uh, out in California is where a lot of the uh, tech-focused uh, innovation occurs. Well, there there are tech-focused uh, entrepreneurs and innovators all over the country, and so we want to find out where they are and uh, and and help them get up and running. And I'm also uh, a co-sponsor of the USA uh, USA Telecoms Act, uh, Telecommunications Act. That authorizes up to $750 million for a grant program to promote and accelerate the deployment and use of open interface, standards-based, and interoperable 5G networks throughout the United States. Uh, 5G is important. Uh, it's kind of a parallel race. At the same time, we're trying to solve the uh, urban-rural divide. Uh, we've got to win the race to 5G as well. Uh, because we're in competition with nations like China to do that. Another topic that you had already alluded to uh, and one that has really come to the forefront over the past couple of months is telehealth. And I know even before this, you've been very active on this issue. And since the passage of the CARES Act, there have been health centers in your district that have received grants. We saw that Marietta Memorial Hospital just received a telehealth grant last week, and I know that you're working with the leadership there on utilizing that grant. So through this time, through this pandemic, have the hospitals and medical professionals you work with identified any gaps in delivering telemedicine that were not apparent pre-COVID? You know, if you, if you can find a silver lining in this very dark cloud, one of the biggest things that we've learned about telehealth delivery is that many people in rural America did not realize how serious of an option telehealth is to meeting many of their 
health needs uh, until they were forced to stay at home and encouraged not to come to the hospital or to the doctor's office. Uh, the, the, The pandemic created a situation where people were forced to stay in their homes and looking for options. Uh, We've heard from a number of providers and patients that are extremely happy with their telehealth appointments. And uh, and now they're even looking to continue them after the pandemic is over. We had one provider in uh, in Belmont County that was a uh, that is a cancer uh, doctor. And uh, and he called us and he said, look, I need some help. Uh, getting a uh, high-speed internet connection into my home because I treat some of the most vulnerable people in in the world, uh, patients that are undergoing chemotherapy. Their immune systems are extremely compromised. If they were to contract this virus, uh, it could kill them in a matter of hours, not days or weeks. That was a big one, is the eye-opening realization that that uh, delivery of healthcare via telehealth, telemedicine is a, is a serious option that people should consider. Makes it all that much more important why we have to get this rural broadband problem uh, resolved. Always looking for the silver linings out of this situation. And if one of those is folks can have additional access to telemedicine that they didn't have before, we we will take the small wins where we can get them. So um, I want to move on to one more telehealth related question, and that's around innovation. You already mentioned that you introduced the Advancing Tech Startups Act, and you also co-sponsored the Strengthening Innovation in Medicare and Medicaid Act. So are there any policies at either the national or the local level that are really hindering the development of telehealth technologies or just advances in medicine in general? When you consider policy, uh, we were we were really proud to get waivers of many of the existing restrictions on telehealth. I mean, I'm, I've been a big advocate of telehealth for a long time. Uh, it has not been the, 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 the providers that were resistant. Uh, the reasons that telehealth was not uh, uh, getting traction uh, was because of the regulatory, the certifications, the uh, the uh, licensing, et cetera. This public health emergency uh, and the waivers that were uh, that were granted to eliminate some of those uh, barriers. Uh, for example, the home not being available to be an originating site uh, for mental health or other appointments, uh, or or barriers where doctors. Uh, were not licensed to provide care across state lines or allowing Medicare to pay for uh, telehealth services that the private sector uh, had already begun making advances on. Uh, those were some of the important waivers. Uh, you know, and as, as we go, as we come out of this pandemic and we go into the new normal, we definitely need to take a close look at policy use what we've learned during this time uh, and and make permanent any of those changes that we can to give doctors and patients more options for better and more convenient care during telehealth. 
Um, I want to segue into another topic that has been top of mind prior to the pandemic, um, but has garnered a lot of interest since, and that's privacy and security. There has been a lot of interest in Congress in maintaining the privacy and security of sensitive information that's shared during the pandemic. And there's been dozens of bills introduced on this, letters sent to agencies. So how are you thinking about privacy and security during the pandemic? And how are you or your constituents sort of thinking about that cost-benefit analysis? of, you know, giving up some privacy, weight against the benefit of sharing health information, tracing, et cetera? Well, I, I, I think the privacy uh, uh, debate will certainly take on a different tone post-pandemic as well, because uh, there's still a lot we don't know about the coronavirus, how it spreads, how it affects people, even those people that have recovered from it. And, and collecting sensitive health data and conducting things like contact tracing uh, are providing very valuable insights into how we can slow the spread uh, of the virus and improve public safety. But we still do have an obligation to protect personal uh, uh, individual information and sensitive data to uh, uh, so that we, we can protect everyone. I, I can tell you that in the age of digitization, the digital economy is here. It is not going to go away. Uh, if, if anything, we are going to become more digitized, not less so. And the sooner we as a culture understand that the cloud, that digital universe has created privacy discussions that, uh, that, that we never even dreamed of. And if we want to take advantage of some of these things, uh, we're going to have to understand that there's a, a cost benefit, uh, uh, reward, risk reward equation that every American is going to have to, uh, is going to have to understand. You know, if you lived in a ritzy neighborhood in a, in a real nice home with a gated community, uh, but you heard that a uh, machete-wielding, uh, AK-47-wielding terrorist was going through your neighborhood uh, killing people, you probably would not think twice if you got a knock at your door and uh, the FBI or the CIA or, or the county sheriff was to say, look, uh, we know that that terrorist is in the neighborhood. They're very, very smart. Uh, they're elusive. Do you mind if we take a look around your house? Maybe we'll find things and see things that uh, that you might not notice to the untrained eye. I know I wouldn't have a problem saying, yeah, come in, do what you need to do to keep my family safe. But yet we don't think about how the internet, uh, the ones and zeros that are flying through the cloud, as you and I are communicating, Lauren, right now, uh, down the same pathway in a parallel path in the cloud, bad people are doing bad things. And so there is a risk of using digital technology and uh, we're getting smarter, but so are the bad guys. And so it is going to be a constant battle to, uh, to protect our privacy and our sensitive data. And we've got to be aware of that that it's an ongoing challenge. It's not one where we're going to 
suddenly, uh, you know, have a ribbon cutting ceremony and say, we've got the privacy problem solved. Uh, technology has introduced new privacy concerns, and it's uh, it's something that we're going to have to remain vigilant to. Yeah, I know both the, the private and the public sector governments have struggled with sort of making that transition from analog to digital. And there sometimes are parallels and sometimes aren't. So it's it's a continued struggle for sure. And, you know, in, in talking through all these policy topics, it becomes really clear that they are, these are really very complex problems that really need smart solutions. And you've been really a champion in, in working to make the government more effective and efficient. And part of that is being able to accurately identify and measure problems or gaps so that target or so that Congress can target solutions. So in, as a general matter, you know, whether it's security or telemedicine, distance learning, connectivity, do we have ways to collect data on the scope of these problems so that we can target solutions? Or what inf- additional information do you think Congress needs in order to be able to solve these problems effectively going forward? Well, you know, I'm I'm part of the Problem Solvers Caucus, uh, and and in some cases, and I'd say in many cases, it's not more data that's needed, but rather a willingness to bring everyone to the table to find workable solutions. Uh, in in terms of connectivity, on the one hand, we still need more accurate, granular data to uh, to create uh, broadband maps. Uh, but, but in rural parts of the country, we already know exactly where those unserved areas are. All you got to do is ask the people that live there. Uh, you know, we, I got so tired of waiting for, uh, the federal government to solve the mapping problem because they've been working on it for 10 years and I've seen little, little progress. Uh, so we did our own map and it didn't surprise anybody. We talked to county sheriffs. Uh, county commissioners, mayors, township trustees. We said, where are you having problems uh, doing your job because of the lack of high-speed internet? And uh, and so we did our own map based on that data. And uh, uh, it's the people on the street that live in these rural areas. They're the ones that are impacted by it. So all we got to do is ask them. They'll tell us who has access and who doesn't. Uh, but for things like distance learning, uh, we need to let the states be the primary decision makers uh, and have an understanding for them as as to what they need, particularly in light of, of whether or not schools are going to open up this fall and what this new normal is going to look like. I've heard all kinds of stories about how schools are going to get opened back up. It sure would be nice if they all had access to distance learning, but they don't. The pandemic has exposed the challenges, both to distance learning and telemedicine. And and I hope we can continue to to lock arms uh, in a bipartisan way to to solve these problems. And I think as a problem solver, a member of that Problem Solvers Caucus, we do some of that. I mean, I don't agree with them on everything that they do, uh, but I, I certainly agree with them on a lot of things that they do. And, uh, and that's why I'm proud to be a part of the caucus. Well, I, I want to end on a question that I'm sure you get asked all the time, and that's around predictions for the for the rest of the year. We're going to be continuing to deal with COVID. We have an election coming up in November. So any thoughts on what gets done and what takes shape before the year is out? 
That's a that's a big question. You know, we saw bipartisanship to pass uh, four relief packages. I mean, I don't know who came up with the numbering system. I call it four. Uh, some people call the last one 3.5. Who knows? But I think we did see a bipartisan effort to do that. Uh, and without getting too political, though, uh, things like proxy voting, uh, I, I'm hearing already that uh, a couple of dozen uh, of my Democrat colleagues have proxied their vote to others to come and vote for them so they don't have to come back uh, into session this week. I'm not going to do that. Uh, we didn't stand Congress down during the Civil War, during World War One, World War Two, Korea, Vietnam, nor 9-11. Uh, the president is working. The, the, the cabinet is working. The Senate is working. Congress needs to be in, in, in there doing its job, too. And we could begin to address some of these policy issues in a more bipartisan fashion. Uh, I'm, I'm not a big fan of this proxy voting plan. So the bottom line, Lauren, is this. I don't know. Uh, you know, we've got to stay focused on solving the problem, getting America's economy open back up, uh, addressing the public health crisis, and stop playing politics with some of these packages where we're trying to nationalize the, uh, the, the, the federal elections, uh, giving illegal immigrants valuable tax dollars that the American people have worked so hard for. Uh, those are the kinds of things that uh, that's driving me crazy. We, we've covered a lot here, and I really want to thank you for your thoughts on these topics. It's really invaluable to have your perspective. And I know the next few weeks are going to be so critical for you and your colleagues. And we here at Nokia are also working to do our part in helping the country on the road to recovery. So we look forward to working with you. And again, want to thank you for your time for being with us here today. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Hope you have a great day. You too. 